today is one verse. It's found in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Paul writes this to the church at Rome as he's closing this letter, this epistle. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you will help us to see the glory of Jesus and that we pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you will teach us to live for your honor and glory alone. Amen. This, the close of this epistle, as Paul often does, he'll, he'll make mention of people's names and he'll give snippets of instruction. He's gone through this epistle having taught about sin and taught about salvation and transitioned those two things for God's people to live in service. And then we get what really could be seem to us to be a random phrase. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Satan is literally not mentioned at one point in this epistle, and yet it's, it's closed here. And it can't help but provoke for us, first of all for them, how would the God of peace uh, crush Satan under the church's feet? And actually, why? Why would that take place? Um, I don't know that we'll completely be able to answer those things in the context because I think it could entail a couple things for the church at Rome. There could have been something specific that, that God had in front of them that he was going to identify them. He will give them victory as Satan tried to thwart the ministry there. Um, but really, the overarching theme of the book of redemption in the Bible has, as a part of its biblical theology model, is that the God of peace will soon crush Satan. And we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to go back to the book of Genesis, and I want you to turn there now with me as we... Look, this, as mentioned, um, the second Sunday of Advent, and our, our focus this morning is peace. We know in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, as God creates, Adam and Eve come together in marriage, and, and theirs was the perfect marriage in the perfect human relationship, and together they were living in what would be would call the shalom of peace. And, and shalom in the Bible is a very interesting word. Um, it means universal flourishing, wholeness, completeness. And those things are in the realm of a, a person's delight. 
and we see this uh, in the beginning, in, the, in, in creation. I want you to follow this with me. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. The Bible says, And God saw that the light was good. Verse 10. And God saw that it was good. Verse 12. And God saw that it was good. Verse 18. And God saw that it was good. Verse 21. And God saw that it was good. Verse 25. And God saw that it was good. And then once upon creating Eve, we look at the, the total consummation of creation with the apex of creation being Adam and Eve. In verse 31, the scripture tells us, And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. They were living in shalom. Creation itself was flourishing. It was multiplying. There was great diversity and color and growth. Um, and certainly, Adam and Eve, in their relationship with God, took great love and worship and delight in, in God. And of course, this was true for God in them because paradise was the perfect environment. Now, what I want you to know about this text um, in Genesis is, and when we think about shalom, obviously we don't usually use the word shalom, but shalom speaks to us about a, a, a deepening peace. It's kind of more sometimes than we give the word peace. There are 237 times specifically the word shalom is used in the Old Testament. And the derivatives of it, along with the specific use of shalom, exceeds 350 times. So shalom is what the context was where God created, both for his creation and uh, all of creation itself, and for those whom he created in Adam and Eve. So as you picture creation as it took place in Adam and Eve in the garden, and what they were left as the viceroy over all of God's creation, it, it depicts to us um, a very rich state of affairs. All of their natural needs were satisfied completely and fully. The natural gifts that God had created for multiplicity, um, they thrived and they were very fruitful. And in all of that, Adam and Eve were inspired to, to God's joyful wonders that he had given the world that he had created. God was delighting in his creation and Adam and Eve worshipped and enjoyed God. Shalom represented not just inward peace, which 
we kind of think about for, for several reasons because Shalom has been damaged. But Shalom was not only inward and, and internal to the soul, but Shalom was outward and, and physical in all that God had taken place. And that was his desire. That was God's design. So this morning as we begin to look at this, I want to look at it in, in three parts on the advent of peace. We're going to look at this is what was in the book of Genesis. We'll then focus our attention on this is what is currently. And then we'll look forward to the future. This is what will be. So we get to Genesis chapter 3 and we know what's taken place. The fall of Adam has taken place. And so this is what was, as God had created everything that was good, creation was whole, creation was complete, and the God of peace, and in God's being is peace, he gave shalom. There was peace and serenity. As I mentioned, things were as they should be. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3 and we know what takes place. Satan indwells the serpent. Once an angel created by God, Satan we know fell at some point and created as a high angelic being, he rebels against God and, and Satan hates God. And Satan is full of pride. Satan's name means adversary. He's called the prince of darkness, the father of all lies, um, a beguiling serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, where um, our elder Bobby read from in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 27 this morning, where in the book of Isaiah it depicts the final crushing by the God of peace of Satan himself. When you're looking at different names for Satan, um, the word dragon oftentimes appears. He is called the great dragon. He is called the great red dragon. But here's what's clear to all of us. Satan represents and is all things that are evil. And as you're looking at scripture, the, the genre of the apocalypse can give us like these cryptic visions. And, and sometimes the symbolism can be very complex, but there's somewhat of a consistency as it's dealing with this serpent, the great red dragon, the great dragon who is Satan. Satan loves chaos. Satan saw the peace and the, the serenity, the shalom that God had given his creation. And as the great liar, as the great thief, as the great murderer, he wanted to disrupt God's order and to bring disorder. Now, this has always been true about Satan, and it certainly is true for us for even our own homes and our own church, Satan seeks to disrupt 
God's peace. And his sole mission for the time that he has left is to thwart the mission of God and the mission of God on the earth, though he is bound. You know, on the worst moment in human history, when Adam fell, the serpent here won a great victory. Peace was ruined, and paradise was lost. In that devastating moment, as God, who always does, goes rushing to Adam and Eve, I want you to notice the promise that he gives us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, this is a part of the judgment that is being described. God gives the judgments for the fall of man, for the serpent, the woman, and for Adam. And he says to the serpent in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Okay, now what that's describing is that there are two races. There is those who are of the seed of the serpent, which is obviously Satan, and those who are the seed of the woman, which from the seed of the woman would come, of course, the Messiah. God is promising a Messiah, and there is this great war drama that begins at the fall of man. And he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, which those are who belong to Satan, and to her offspring, those who would belong to the Messiah. And he, Satan, or I'm sorry, Christ, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And, and this clash, what it depicts is that Satan from the fall of man will cause the Messiah to suffer, but ultimately... Through the suffering of the Messiah, Christ himself would deal the final crushing blow and, and obviously the final victory over sin, death, and the grave. Now, what was promised here was assured. It was as good as if it was ever going to take place. This is what was in the, in the past. God, in earth's most difficult moment, promised a Messiah. One who would come, who would right the wrong. The God of peace promises the Messiah and the Christ, and he will crush the serpent's head. He will restore peace for God's people. And really throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there is a looking towards and for this Messiah. One of the Messiah who will come and slay the dragon and deliver a kingdom and once again bring peace to God's people. And so this warfare is a part of the clash of God's redemptive story that's told in Scripture. We know that that story, the redemptive story, is told through the covenants 
in the Old Testament through Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. Through each of the covenants from this point in Genesis 3.15, God's people was always looking for the Messiah and who would be the one. And this redemptive story builds. It starts very small, but more and more as we move through the Old Testament and through the various covenants, it grows and the dynamics build. To the final covenant of the Old Testament, the Davidic covenant, which in each of the covenants more is being added to whom the Messiah will be and, and to what his kingdom will affect. In the Davidic com- covenant in 2 Samuel, or I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15 and 16, God lets David know that this will be a kingdom that will last forever and that shalom will permeate in it. And of course, we know that that Messiah was not David, but that last covenant through those promises would lead us to Jesus. Now, let's go back to Romans chapter 16. That, of course, is what was. This, of course, is what is. We know there are 400 years of silence in the Old Testament. And when the Gospels come on the scene where God had been quiet, he now burst back on the scene with the birth of the Messiah. In Matthew's Gospel, he's he's quick to give us a genealogy of how the Messiah is connected to Abraham and is connected to David. This child is born as connected to the promises that were given to the past. Jesus is the fulfillment of those those covenants. And so as Christ is born, he grows up. We know from from Luke, I think it's chapter 2, verse 52, uh, 52, he he grows physically. Uh, He grows in in a way where he's uh, in favor with God and man and his family. And of course, in Mark chapter 1, as we studied the book of Mark together as a church, we know that Jesus inaugurates the kingdom that was foretold in new creation. The time is fulfilled. This is what is. This is what is now. And that all people everywhere should repent and to believe the gospel. As a part of Jesus' ministry revealing that he would bring shalom back, we see in the gospels where Jesus heals. Jesus gives those who are deaf the capacity to hear again. Jesus gives those who are blind to see. He casts out demons. He feeds the hungry multiple times. We we, we watch him in the Gospels to calm disasters. He he raises the dead, right? Even from uh, uh, from Lazarus. And then Jesus dies and he pays for sin and he along with the Father and the Son raise himself 
from the dead. Jesus inaugurates his kingdom, and his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Satan, of course, hates this. He hated, he hated it then. But Jesus is proving that he is going to reverse the curse. He, in fact, is the promised one from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Turn with me real quickly to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. It's a very interesting phrase that is used here. As the heavenly host are praising God, once again as we celebrate Advent this day, the second Sunday, looking at peace, and as they sing, this is what they sing in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, who is it, we all may ask, whom God is pleased with? Martin Luther says, and probably, I mean, this may be as great a work as he ever done. I know he wrote Bondage of the Will, but in his commentary on the book of Galatians says this, grace covers the sin and peace comes to the soul. And so the question that we have for this Advent Sunday, are you one with whom God is pleased? And the only answer to that question in an affirmative way is, do you belong to Jesus? Does peace comfort your soul? And we all seriously need to consider this because none of us have the promise of tomorrow. Your consideration of Jesus should be urgent. And this is why when Jesus begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This warfare of this clash that we saw back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is the people of Satan with the people of God. And the only way that you can have peace with God is by faith. Paul says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So if you do not know Jesus, if you do not belong to Jesus, you are in warfare with God. And the only way that you can be brought to peace with God is faith. Now, the Reformed tradition is always defined, as you know this, folks, our own people, as faith comes through knowledge, assent, and trust. The first thing in the knowledge, we must understand the components that make up the gospel, that God himself is holy, that the creation account and what destroyed shalom is true is that man sinned, Adam rebelled in sin, 
which has found us in our own rebellion in sin against God, and that God did, though, make a promise of a Messiah, and that Messiah is whom we celebrate, the Lord Jesus Christ, his very own son. The components of the gospel is that God is holy and that we are sinners and not just sinners, but that we are sinful and that Christ alone is the only one that can save you from your sin. More than just words, though the gospel are words, you want to consider this for this reason. Because in hell, it is an eternity of no peace. For whatever kind of knowledge you possess this morning of hell and your understanding of what it is and what the Bible describes it to be, which is devastating, it's worse. John Calvin said this when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. It was to give peace to his church. When Jesus was on the cross and as he was dying, when he cried the words to telestai, which means it is finished, he's literally saying, this work that I have come to do is now complete. Fulfilled in space and time, just as it was promised to Genesis 3.15. And its effect will last for eternity. John Calvin was right. When Jesus said it is finished, it truly does give peace to the church. Church, we will enjoy a shalom, an eternity of perfect peace. And so that becomes the question. Do you belong to Jesus? Because if you do, you will enjoy an eternal relationship with the God of peace. Or if you reject Jesus in your own willfulness, what you can expect in hell is an eternity with absolutely no peace, not for a moment. And obviously this morning for us, it's our prayer that you come to Jesus, that you receive Jesus by faith. And to be honest with you, it's not really something you do. It's something that happens to you. It, that, that which happens to you comes to you from the gospel because these components to the gospel then become alive to you. Wow, that is true. I do believe what the Bible says about who God is. And now I believe what the Bible says about what I am. That begins to resonate within your soul and you find it to be true and you find that your only hope for peace is if I trust in Christ alone to save me from my sin, I will have. God uses different things in various ways that, to save people. Peace was a major thing for me. I wrestled with it for three months because I was raised in Christianity. 
And, and, and I was full of pride because I didn't want to expose myself to someone else because of who my dad was. And I had no peace until God invaded my room. And the gospel blew up. And that night when I took Jesus by faith, when I simply cried out, and please don't misunderstand this because it's not the words, it's what happens to you. I only could mutter, Jesus saved me. I didn't know a lick of theology, but I knew I needed Jesus. And I needed Jesus primarily in my case because genuinely I had no peace. Is that you? Do you possess peace? Only the God of peace can give you eternal peace. Let's move ahead to Genesis or Revelation chapter 20. We've looked at this is what was. This is what is. And this is what will be. One day, the promise that was made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God would give a Messiah that would bring peace where peace had been disrupted to the human relationships, that God would have a people for himself, that was fully and totally complete, right, on the cross, the certainty of our salvation is found in the words, it is finished. And so for those who have taken Jesus by faith, God is pleased with you because this is the, the human responsibility and requirement that you trust in Christ alone to save you. And just in case there are some that do not know what happens to this, this dragon we look into Revelation chapter 20 and we see some of the, the descriptions of this cryptic vision that's given the Apostle John. Some of the complex symbolism that, that signifies and goes back to this history-long warfare between God and Satan since the fall of Satan. Look at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, which is a, a long duration of time. There is literally never a time in the Bible where it speaks to a thousand years as exactly a thousand years. It's always used as a, a metaphor for an extended period of time. Church, here's what we want you to know as through the cross of Jesus, Jesus has has binded Satan for this indefinite period. And we know 
that the gospel goes across all nations and God is building a people for himself and yet he will let him loose a little season till he finally defeats him in full, looking at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from the prison and will come to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched upon the broad land of the earth, surrounded by the camp of saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Here's what you want to see, this wicked, evil serpent, the devil, who had deceived, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and that's his doom that's satan's final doom this church is what will be when the promise is fully realized prophecy from the prophets and the apostles contains an element for all of us that it should always seem eminent. I have no doubt from the promise that Adam and Eve heard, they were looking very quickly, perhaps in uh, their immediate children, was the Messiah going to come? There was an anticipation of God's people. God's people have always lived with an anticipation of eminence that Christ and God will come to fulfill his promises. There's a word theologically that's used that's called telescopic, whereas in the measuring of human affairs, God brings within them his divine measures. So as an example, Adam and Eve genuinely fell of their own volition, yet God was at work who was going to bring about the promised remedy for their sinful behavior. We know that this truth, this telescopic truth that defines prophecy starts small. Right? We don't know much in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. But as more and more of the story, of course, is unfolded, not only through the covenants, that we looked at that was given to David, that there would be a divine kingdom, we know that Jesus himself is the final fulfillment of it. Christians have always lived under the promise of expectation. You and I, as the church and the church around the globe, are awaiting that Christ has come, that's what we're celebrating, right? Advent, but that Christ will come again and we're to live with a sense of eminence. Now please hear this. There should be a sense of urgency on our part, not panic. The things that go on across the globe can bring us to great concern, but nothing can touch 
the peace of God for God's people. Why? Because Christ himself has crushed the warfare. He himself is our peace because he has crushed Satan's stranglehold upon us. The patriarchs, the prophets, the apostles all lived with an anticipation, an expectation, a sense of urgency. Here's why. The Prince of Peace is going to return for us, church. And he's going to make all things new. Because when Jesus comes, Christ will defeat Satan fully and finally, as Revelation chapter 20 describes. The king's going to slay the dragon. When Jesus brings this peace, he'll restore peace to creation itself. Romans chapter 8 describes that. All of creation is going to function as it was intended by God. It will flourish. And God will allow us to truly live in a shalom, an internal peace that will also see in its natural fruits from our glorified body, everything multiplying and being blessed. It's really kind of hard to grasp because it's cold. <laughs> Paradise will be restored. Shalom for eternity. And because this is true, the Eucharist for us, church, is a table of peace because Christ has set it. As Jesus presides over this table, He gives this table, He gives this peace for those who are trusting in Christ alone. Your soul is at peace and it is signified in the taking of the bread and the drinking of the wine. Let's pray. Father, now, as we come, we're thankful that Jesus has come and Jesus has made a way and that your people have found the way as you have gone across the globe through the message of the gospel, saving those whom you have called and it is those whom you have called to which they are, you are pleased. Lord, we know that that elective grace of yours is not of any good thing on our part. Lord, we know you didn't look into the, the years of our life and to see how special we were. There was really nothing special about anyone that's ever been a part of the church. We all find ourselves in humility and gratitude because through your grace, we don't get what we deserve. We deserve an eternity with no peace. But because of your grace, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, for those who trust in Christ, we will enjoy a shalom, an eternity of peace with you. Lord, there is a glimpse of this now 
where ultimately we know you will gather with all of your people to restore your creation and to give peace to your people for all eternity. Now the church gathers. In the signs and the seals of the sacrament, we see in the bread and the wine the tangible evidence that our faith is is real because Jesus' body is the bread and the wine is his shed blood so that we, by faith, would be justified and have peace with you. We praise your name for our peace and pray, God, that you will bring peace to others, even in this room, that if they're being honest, don't know you. We pray for this and ask for this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, you may